Oh, good morning. My name is Carlos, and we're in the middle of a series that we're calling I Believe. And in this series, we're taking a look at all the absolutes. We're taking a look at what Christians have agreed upon for centuries in the church, what the Bible explicitly teaches. And as we have looked at all of these absolutes, what we've said is that they all point to Jesus. A few weeks ago, we took a look at the Bible, and we said that the Bible points to Jesus. The climax of the story is Jesus. And so last week, Charles started talking about Jesus, and and he began to talk about the identity of Jesus. And this week, we're going to continue to talk about the identity of Jesus, but focus on really one select aspect of his identity. And in order to do that, we're going to take a look at a prologue. A prologue is something that is written at the beginning of a drama or a story or a narrative, and it provides some background information. It provides some pertinent uh, details that you need to know prior to learning about what will happen afterwards. Um, Here's an example of a prologue. If you've ever seen Star Wars, okay? Star Wars always starts the same way, right? A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. And then the horns start going, and the music starts playing, and, and this yellow text starts to scroll up screen. It's beautiful. I have goosebumps just thinking about it. <laughs> That's a prologue. It gives you the information you need in order to understand what will happen next. A prologue was written in the book of John. John wrote this book with the intention that people would understand the truth of Jesus and that they would believe. And so he writes this prologue. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of John. John is the fourth book in the New Testament, the second part of the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, there are different ways you can follow along. You can go on your screen, on your tablet or on your phone, and you can go to the Bible app or the Bible Gateway app, or you can read on the screen back behind me. Or you can take the Bible out of the sea rack in front of you. And again, I've said it uh, many times before, I'm going to say it again. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home. It's our gift for you. It's free. We believe that reading the Bible has the potential to impact your life. So we want everyone to have one. But we're going to be reading from John chapter 1. And we're going to be reading from verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. There's so much in that chapter that we cannot cover it in one day. There's so much in that chapter that we could probably fill up the entire I Believe series with just looking at those 18 verses, actually. It's so rich. It's so deep. And I said that John wrote this book in an effort that you would believe in Jesus, that those who would read it would believe in Jesus, that they would believe the truth of Jesus. And so he sets up this prologue, and this prologue is all of the important information. And what John is trying to do in this prologue is that he's trying to establish the reality of Jesus. The reality of Jesus. And as he establishes this reality of Jesus, he gives us some information that as we read it, might not sound so earth-shattering to our ears because we're reading it after going to church or maybe some of us grew up reading this from different years or whatever, but it doesn't sound so earth-shattering to our ears. But to the people who read it in his time, this was radical. And the first thing and the main thing that he says in this passage is this, that Jesus is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. A lot of times we read that and we accept it as true because the Bible says it is so. But sometimes when we look at things in the Bible and we accept it as true, the reality is is that we don't fully understand what the Bible is actually saying. We believe it's true, we're just not really sure what we're believing. And that's what happens sometimes with this passage. John is calling Jesus the Word. And the word that he's using is logos. Logos. And this was an intentional use of the word. And in order to understand how important this is, in order to understand how earth-shattering this is, we need a little bit of a philosophy lesson. We need a little bit of a philosophy lesson. Logos is a word that comes from Greek philosophers. The Greek Stoics, the Greek philosophers, when they looked at the world, when they looked at creation, they saw order. They saw harmony. And when they saw this order, when they saw this harmony, they said, it must come from something. Something must have been put into place or something must exist that put this order, put this harmony into place. And so they came up with this spiritual principle. And they said, this spiritual principle is what put this order and harmony in place. And this spiritual principle they called the Logos. John knew this, and John says that the Logos is not just a force. The Logos is a person, and he says the Logos is Jesus. This is earth-shattering. Luke Ferry is a French philosopher, and he wrote a book that became a bestseller in France, and it was called 
a brief history of thought. And if you like philosophy, you might want to read this book, but I need to tell you up front that Luke Ferry is not writing with a biblical worldview. In fact, he's writing with the opposite of that. Luke Ferry is an atheist. But in his analysis of Greek philosophy, in his analysis of the Greek Stoics, he comes up with an observation that we really need to grasp in order to understand John 1. In his book, he says this, Firstly and most fundamentally, the Logos which, as we have seen for the Stoics, merged with the impersonal, harmonious, and divine structure of the cosmos as a whole, came to be identified for Christians with a single and unique personality, that of Christ. To the horror of Greeks, the new believers maintained that the Logos, in other words, the divine principle, was in no sense identical with the harmonious order of the world, but was incarnated in one outstanding individual, namely Christ. What John is writing in this prologue is radical. And he makes radical claims in this prologue. And there are five claims that I want to say in in, in his presenting of the reality of Christ, the reality of Jesus. And the first, again, is that he is saying first that the Logos was with God at the beginning. So when he says that, here's what he's saying. The Logos was not created. There was never a time that the Logos never was. The Logos always was. He was with God at the beginning. And in that statement comes the second earth-shattering thing. He was with God. The Logos is not an it. The Logos is a person. This is radical. This is radical for who he's writing to. The third thing that he writes is that All creation comes through the Logos. So, first thing we say is that the Logos was not created. He was with God at the beginning, so he is a person. All creation comes through the Logos. And then, even more of shattering, the Logos is God. These four things were enough to turn the views of life upside down for those who were reading this text. But that's not where John stops. John says one more thing, and it's the most radical thing that he could possibly say. He says that the Logos became flesh. The Logos became man. The Logos was incarnated, and that man was Jesus. This is huge. This changes everything. And so John says, this is the reality of Jesus, and and you cannot negotiate with this reality. It is an absolute, but you need to respond to that reality. And so there's a response that John says that all of humanity must have. And he says there's really only two responses that you can have. And the first is to believe. And we're going to go into that in a little bit later, uh, in a little bit uh, later part of the message. We're going to talk about what is the importance of that. But one of the responses is to believe. And John says, for those who believe, they are given the right to become children of God. But there's another response that is equally as important. And the second response is this. The second response centers around the lack of recognition. John uses this illustration between darkness and light, and he says that uh, darkness does not overcome the light. 
And this word that he uses is intentional again, and this word that he uses has a dual meaning. Tim Keller is a, is a preacher in New York City, and, and I love listening to him and, and reading some of his writings, and he takes an English word as an illustration for this word overcome so that we can kind of understand. He uses the word master. Master has a dual meaning. You can master something and that you overcome it and subject it to yourself. But also master revolves around, revolves around understanding. You can master something and that you understand it completely. And so when John, according to Keller, when John is using this word overcome, there's two meanings. There's an overtly hostile action, a rejection of the light, uh, and, and this is when we choose sin. But then there's also a lack of understanding, a lack of recognition. John says that the world did not recognize him. And there's a real danger in this response. There's a real danger in the lack of recognition. Because when I do not recognize the reality of Jesus, when I do not understand the reality of Jesus, the tendency is that I begin to create my own reality of Jesus. I begin to create my own reality of Jesus. And, and the problem is, is that for far too many, people have rejected their reality of Jesus. They haven't rejected the reality of who Jesus really is. When we do not understand the reality of Jesus, we begin to reject who we have created Jesus to be. And that's a dangerous thing. Because you need to understand that my response cannot change the reality of Jesus. Who Jesus is, the reality of Jesus, is not subjected to what I believe. Jesus is who he is. My response cannot change the reality of Jesus. And I continue to repeat myself in there over and over, and it's on purpose because it's important. My response cannot change the reality of Jesus. However, my response can impact the result of that reality. You see, there are two different results that occur in regards to my response. Should my response be one that chooses darkness and rejects the light of Jesus? The penalty is death, and this death is found in complete separation from God. There is a real consequence to sin. There is a real consequence to my rebellion of God. And it is death. It is separation, eternal separation from God. And we all stand condemned. There is no one in this room who did not choose sin over God at some point in their life. I stand before you as someone who stood condemned, a screwed up person who rejected God and chose myself. And there is nothing that I could do to fix that. I was eternally separated from God. There was nothing that I could do to get myself to where God is. And so we are eternally separated. So if there's nothing that we could do, if there's nothing we could say, then what had to happen? What had to happen in order for that to be fixed? God had to respond. God had to respond. And so the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. That is probably four 
of the most powerful words that you might ever hear. The Word became flesh. God responded. God sent Jesus as a bridge to bridge across that separation between us and him. And, and there are times when I've seen illustrations where I've seen this illustration where there's this cavern and, and there's God and there's us. And in this, in this illustration, there is sometimes put a cross as a bridge and Jesus' name is written on it. And, and what happens is, is that now we can move from this side to this side where God is. And that's an accurate description. That's an accurate illustration. And it's effective. But I want to tell you that it doesn't capture the complete deepness of what really occurred. It doesn't capture the fullness and richness of God's response. It's not simply that I start on this side and that I end on this side. Look at verse 18 in John chapter 1. There is a deep relationship. There's a deep relationship between the Son and the Father. There's a deep, intimate relationship. And this is the relationship that God is calling us to. It is the right of those who are being called children of God. It's not simply moving from one side to the other. Because when we just do that, it's like, I was here, but now I'm here. I'm still on the side of God, but I'm just here. There's something deeper. There's something richer. There's something deep in that relationship that we need to understand. There's a camp called Camp Conquest in Denver, Pennsylvania. And every year they do a father-daughter retreat. They do it in October. And I've gone for a few years with my daughter, Autumn, my oldest daughter, Autumn. And it's, it's great. You know, you do uh, different activities like crafts and, and cake decorating and all those things that that your daughter will like. <laughs> and then you get to shoot things with bows and arrows and tomahawks and rifles, and I like that. That's fun. And so they do a really good job. Well, this year, uh, I took my younger daughter, Natalia. She had turned eight, and I took her because I had taken Autumn in the past, and now I took Natalia. And there are different chapel services that you go to during the weekend as well. Uh, and there's a speaker there, a local pastor who teaches. And in one of those chapels, he asked the daughters, he says, daughters, turn to your dads and tell them what makes you feel safe. So I looked at Natalia, and I, I said, what makes you feel safe, honey? And the thing you need to understand about Natalia is that she's actually my shy one. Uh, she's also a drama queen and can throw tantrums like no one else, but she's my shy one. And so I looked at her and said, what makes you feel safe? And so she didn't answer at first, and my mind started racing. I was like, okay, maybe I can help her out here. And what makes me feel safe? And so I was like, oh, okay. I put my security in whether I have money and savings or not. I put security in my job. I put security in my status. I put security in my friendships. And I put security in my ministry. I was like, yeah, none of that applies to Natalia. And so then I decided to just be quiet because that's what I should do. Because if I gave her an answer, it's really she was going to give me the answer I gave her, not really give me her answer. So finally she turned to me and she whispered an answer, and I, I couldn't hear her. And so I, I put my arm around her, and I brought my ear down to her lips, and I said, well, what is it that makes you feel safe? And she whispered back, she says, when you hold me. When you hold me. Natalia got it right. Natalia got it right. As an adult, I place my security in my savings account, whether there's money in there or not. I place it in my job or my status or my ministry or whatever. My daughter, my child's security is simply to be 
in the arms of her father. Simply to be in the arms of her father. How do I so often lose that childlike response? How do I so often lose that response? And you see, this is the true result of the response of the word became flesh. We are able to run into the arms of the Father, to run into his arms of protection, to run into his arms of warmth, to run into his arms of forgiveness. This is the true result of the response of the word became flesh. Listen to the picture that Jesus paints about the Father's response to us, because what is more amazing is not only that we get to run into the Father's arms, is that He desires it more than we could ever imagine. Jesus tells a story that is written in the book of Luke, and He talks about how a young son takes uh, his inheritance early, and he leaves his father, and he squanders it all, and he falls rock bottom. He's literally in the muck and mire of, of, of just pig filth, and he decides to go back to his father. And listen to the picture that Jesus paints of the Father's response to the Son. And listen to the picture that Jesus paints in regards to the response that the Father has to us. In Luke chapter 15, verse 20, it says this. So he got up and went to his Father. But while he was still a long way off, his Father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his Son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. He threw his arms around his son who was still covered with pig filth. He threw his arms around the son who was still completely dirty. He threw his, his arms around a son who had no right to come back. And he hugs him and he kisses him. And this is the same response he has for us. This is the same response he has for us. This is the result of those who choose Jesus. In John's words, in verses 12 and 13, it says... Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. This should change everything. This should change everything. Has the gospel rocked my life? Has it shaken it to its very do I fully understand what it means that the word became flesh? What it means that this response allows me to be called a child of God? This is not simply something that is, is limited to when I die or when I go to heaven. I am his child now. I get to live out a life now affected by the gospel, held in my father's arms. But is that my life? Is that my life? Or am I placing my security in something else? Because if my life isn't that, if my life has not been shaked to its very core, I must begin to ask myself, what truly is my response? Did I simply reject the light? Did I reject Jesus? Or worse yet, do I simply not understand him? Am I going through the motions? Am I just simply going to church and doing the right thing? God does not call us to the church. He calls us to himself. 
Going to, a ch- to church, com- being in a community of believers is part of our response to God calling him to himself. But he's not calling us simply to go to church or become a better picture of ourselves. He's calling us to himself to deeper love, deeper worship of him. Is that my response? Is that my response? Because the result of believing in the reality of Jesus, the result of following the real Jesus, not the Jesus I create, is an intimate result that changes everything. I'm not simply running from one side to the other. I'm running into the arms of a father who loves me more than I can ever imagine. I'm not simply running from this side to this side. I'm running into the embrace of a father who loves me even though I rejected him. And the reason I can run to him is because the word became flesh. Which way are you running? Which way are you running? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for a love that is simply more than we can ever comprehend or understand. We thank you that you sent your Son. Father, we thank you for sending your Son that the Word became flesh. That not only would we be forgiven, but that we could run into your arms. And experience the relationship that the Son had with the Father. This deep, intimate relationship. This eternal relationship with the one who loves us. Help that to be real in our lives today. Let it not be something that we think happens when we die or go to heaven. Let us see the fullness of the gospel in our lives today. In every aspect of our life. Let us live with the truth that your response to our rejection was the ultimate act of love. Be with us this week. We pray this in Jesus' name.